Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to the third episode of One Step Beyond, a show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. I'm Tony Fletcher, an author, broadcaster, runner, hiker, and traveler. As much as anything, I'm a storyteller, and to that end, One Step Beyond will include interviews, features, and field recordings. Whether it's to walk a local trail or climb a distant mountain, travel to a new country or explore culture close to home, run a first 5k or tackle an ultramarathon, One Step Beyond is all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. Fortunately, at the time of recording this, it looks like the outdoors is once again being made available to us. I so hope we can learn from this pandemic to respect Mother Nature. And that discussion will certainly be a part of the broad conversation as this show moves forwards. But if you've heard the first two episodes, you'll know that we're halfway through a four-part mini-series, From Kingston to Kilimanjaro, based on my journey to Tanzania with friends last August. So, whether you're listening on the sofa, in the kitchen, or getting your daily exercise while practising your social distancing, relax, enjoy, and get ready to go. One step Morning, Protus. Morning. Morning, Tony. Morning, Tim. Morning, Tony. Ah, what's on today's agenda then? Well, I'm just. It's pretty cold. <laughs> Colder than it was during the night. Yeah. Um, when I went up to the bathroom, again, the stars at night were just. The Milky Way was just spectacular. It is amazing, isn't it? Now we're looking down uh, into the plains and we're just through the mist we can see one two three four five six seven eight ranges just like shrouded in mist and it's it, just incredible it is it is stunning it beats uh, this one beats the catskills from kingston to kilimanjaro a four-part series on a journey to the roof of Africa. Episode 3. The Summit. We were sent to bed at 8pm last night and told we'd be woken at 6.30 and it's like, really? Since, since when was I four years old again? <laughs> but, <laughs> but we all, but you we know, all managed 10 hours Tonight a we're going to get, you know, two-fifths of whatever sleep. Yeah. Yeah, before, no, before we do probably the hardest climb of our lives. Absolutely the hardest climb of our lives. It's sunrise on the morning of Tuesday, August the 6th. And along with my friend Tim, I'm looking down on Africa from the Horombo huts at a height of 12,200 feet. Somewhere another 7,000 feet, over 2,000 metres above us, is the real roof of Africa, the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And around 24 hours from now, we hope to be standing on it. 
All that remains between us and that goal is 10 miles of uphill climbing, every single step leading us into ever thinner air. From the Uhuru Peak, assuming we make it, we will turn around for a rapid descent all the way back to the Hurombo huts. It's just as well we were sent to bed at 8pm. The Tim is joining us on this long 24-hour climb is actually great news. If you heard the last episode, you'll know that at the end of our two days of initial trekking, Tim, who had travelled all the way from Sydney, Australia to join us, had come down with a severe case of AMS, acute mountain sickness. He'd never been to a height like this before. And though that was also true of Marie and our group, the thin air had hit him like a gale-force wind. Queasy, woozy, generally unsettled, by the time he went to bed that Sunday evening, after a group dinner at which he just stared at his food, he was seriously considering whether he needed to quit already. Fortunately, this was where our planning kicked in. We'd added what's called an acclimatisation day. And after we set off this Tuesday morning on a 10k, 1,000 metre climb to the Kibo huts, from where we will hopefully tackle the summit, I recounted the previous day into my faithful Zoom recorder. We all went on a hike to go to a higher elevation so we could get a little more experience with a lot less air. And then, you know, you come down, so you climb high and sleep low, which is always what's recommended and what you can't really achieve on any other day on this trek. Some of us, a couple of us wanted to keep going. We were very, very concerned as well for Tim, who'd been suffering a lot on the climb up. So we split into two groups. And uh, the one other group, they still climbed up from Zebra Rock. They get up to a viewpoint, which I'm, I'm told was incredibly impressive. They could see the work ahead of them for today and tomorrow. And two of us went further up. It's uh, the Mwenzi route. It's a longer way of going up or down to the Kibo huts, but it takes you to this vista when you reach the saddle. And you can see, uninterrupted, because the weather's so clear up here above the clouds, Mwenzi off to the right and Kibo off to the left. And both of them just looking stunning. And as people have surely read and understand, it's like a moonscape at that point. You're up in the Alpine Desert, meaning you're in a kind of like, essentially what it says, you're in a desert at 14,000 feet. It's evident that people just don't use the Mwenzi route. It wasn't well-traveled. It was just incredible tranquility. Everything's beautiful. When Gwen and I came down from our extended hike, we found a fully rejuvenated and successfully acclimatized Tim sitting outside our A-frame with Stephen Marie taking turns to read the classic Ernest Hemingway short story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which Tim had brought with him on a tablet specifically for such an occasion. Perhaps a little affected by the thin air and the sun myself, I got thoroughly burned all over my face during this day. I neglected to turn on my tape recorder. But you know, sometimes the greatest memories are best preserved the old-fashioned way, in the mind alone. Well, we're back on African time. We're back on African time? Yeah. What time is it? 7.15. Uh, we're okay, right? Eight. Yeah, by 8. We're good. Right, by 8. We should Half be. an hour for breakfast, 15 minutes to, to finish up. Yeah. 
We'd been told to assemble in the dining room at 6.45am. When breakfast comes out a solid 30 minutes later, it's obvious that we're behind schedule once more. Then again, we are making something of a meal of it. Listen, somebody must have done with the bits and porridge. No, can't be it. I can't have invented. You've invented a new thing. I invented a breakfast. Mountain food. Mountain food breakfast. A real breakfast of champions where no soy milk is available. Did you try peanut butter in it? No. Disgusting. You're so American. (laughs) It seems to me we could do with some bullying to keep us on track. Especially because at high altitude like this, we're not exactly coordinated. Okay, so 8.30, that's okay. <laughs> Shall we walk? Yeah, where's Pro... Um, Who's your backpack? Lucas has got it. Yeah, he may do, but did you not just see Pro just at your... Uh, your yeah, uh, he told me Lucas had my stuff. Okay. All right, well, well we're, not leaving without you. we're not leaving without you, Tim, and he's leaving. Lucas will leave with us. Yeah. Oh! Small matter of poles. And my poles, yeah. <coughs> and my poles as well. A very small matter of my poles. As we ascend from the Harombo huts on today's 10 kilometre, 6 miles walk, we soon leave the moorland behind, and with it, the last real visible signs of life. The vegetation thins away almost entirely, leaving just what are rightly called everlastings, some of them surprisingly colourful. Off in the distance, at the very top of the volcano, we can see the snows of Kilimanjaro, at least what's left of them. Right. So how does this compare to what you know in your life? Uh, it's definitely some uh, a huge decrease of the glaciers. I remember in uh, 1993, okay. Are we up there? Uh, that mountain was pretty much covered in the snow. And those glaciers were... I mean, they were huge, right? So it's definitely some like global warming is has some thing to do with it. It's, it's so in '93, yeah, we live at what we're looking at now, coming up from the south, and we can see three or four of the trails. That would all have had a white coating. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, it would have the whole white coating. Okay. Yeah. Hans Mayer, the German who initially tried to summit Kilimanjaro in 1887 marched through snowdrifts two metres deep on the saddle, the name given to the windswept barren stretch between Kibo and Mwenzi that we will spend much of our day hiking through and beyond. His climb was abandoned when he came up against a sheer wall of ice just below the crater rim, estimating it to be at least 60 metres or 200 feet thick at all points. When Mayer returned two years later, better prepared for what turned out to be the first successful summit of Kibo, he noted a significant retreat in the ice line all around the mountain. That retreat has continued apace over the subsequent 130 years. And it seems all too likely that in my own lifetime, the ice will disappear from this southern face entirely. It would be easy to put this all down to global warming, and climate change is certainly having a dramatic impact on East Africa. But it's important to understand that Kilimanjaro, being the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, has its own utterly unique climate system. The volcano is subject to two competing trade winds, one that blows in from the southeast and brings what are called the long rains from March to May, another that comes in from the northeast and brings what are called the short rains in November and December. 
Given that I've already made much of the fact that we've been looking down on the clouds, that begs the question as to how snow falls on the summit in the first place. For that, you can thank what are called the anti-trade winds, which carry no precipitation but blow fiercely across the saddle from the northeast between May and October, as we can testify on this August mid-morning. So we've reached this little breach with the saddle here. We're probably a bit lower than we topped out at yesterday, me and Gwen. You can hear me putting on my Innovate Storm Shell. And I think we're going to need it as we go down into this unprotected area where basically the wind will cut across. It's when these anti-trade winds drop in force that they push the cloud-bearing southeastern trade winds above them and up the slopes of Kilimanjaro, from where those will drop snow on the summit. You can often see clouds shroud the volcano from a distance, and today, sure enough, by mid-morning, we're in the thick of them. Exactly a year ago, Protus brought a group to Kilimanjaro that had to trek through snow on the crater to reach the Uhuru Peak. Nobody in our crew can predict whether today's clouds will also rise up and drop precipitation on what we otherwise understand to be a currently snowless summit. Now, as to why these massively thick layers of ice are receding from the crown of the volcano and from within the crater itself. Well, there's widespread scientific acknowledgement that the melting of Kilimanjaro's glaciers is not directly due to increased greenhouse gases. The flat white surface of the ice is adept at reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere, even the increasingly unprotected sunlight that we're experiencing with global warming. It's the heating up of the ground beneath that causes the ice to melt, slowly, from the bottom up. This explains the giant overhangs of the ice cliffs that we'll hopefully encounter on the crater if we successfully summit the rim tomorrow morning. What I'm really looking forward to seeing is those ice peaks, the sort of ice sculptures. Yes. Um, I don't know how close we get to them on our trek. Yeah, we'll see how everybody's feeling, you know. Yeah. We usually uh, give people the options if, you know, they're feeling strong and uh, they want to get closer. We'll be able to do that. As for how long the glaciers have been around and how rapidly they're disappearing, well, geologists estimate that Kilimanjaro has often been barren of ice, and perhaps for as long as 10 to 100,000 years at a time, which could in part have been due to fiery volcanic activity. The current glaciation most likely took place during the last major ice age, about 10,000 years ago, and although occasionally reinforced by mini ice ages, there was one between around 1400 and 1700 AD. The Thames froze over in London. The glaciers have been subject to steady retreat over the millennia. That's not to question the rapid rate of global warming or mankind's contribution to it. Fully half of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since that last little ice age ended has occurred in just the last four decades. And the four hottest years on record all occurred in the last half decade. So while Kilimanjaro may not be a perfect poster child for global warming, it's certainly impacted. There's less snow falling so as to replenish the glaciers, and there's a reported increase in sublimation, which is when the ice skips the melting process and merely evaporates. With East Africa having experienced severe droughts in recent years, these particular factors are having an effect not just up top of Kilimanjaro, but on the farming valleys that surround the mountain. Just reached the last water stop. Not for us, because 
The way it works is the porters are gathering the water for us. Kilimanjaro supplies the water for those incredibly lush, fertile farmlands, arable lands we saw down in Marangu. And the receding glaciers are a problem for that. The long, slow day of climbing across what you can hear is a very, very windy saddle gives us a chance to get to better know our guides and our porters. What is your name? Elias. Elias? Yes. And do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm now 38. Okay. Yes. And you used to play soccer, football, professional? Foot yes, football. Tell me, who did you play for? Uh, we used to play for a national team. For Tanzan Tanzania, Tanzania yeah. national team? Yes, Taipa Stars. And what's your last name, Elias? Uh, about uh, seven what? years ago. Okay, yes. you played about seven years ago? Yes. And how many years were you in the national team? Only for two years. Two years? Yes. What position? A striker. Striker. Did you score for the Tanzania national yes. team? Yes. How but, many uh, times? But not, uh, not good as uh, uh, my other colleagues. His modesty aside, Elias has a claim to greatness, especially for Tim and myself, who are avid fans of Crystal Palace and are busy trying to convert our crew to the cause. Elias tells us that his favourite goal he scored, several years ago now, was against Kenya, Tanzania's neighbours and bitter rivals. The last uh, uh, cup, uh, African Cup yeah. of Nations, yeah. Yeah. we had a very, very big tension between Kenya and Tanzania because they are neighbours. Yeah, sure. Sometimes they beat us, sometimes yeah. we beat them. Yeah. That most recent Africa Cup of Nations took place just a few weeks before we visited. Tanzania and Kenya had been drawn in the same group. On this occasion, Kenya won. The two teams otherwise lost all their games. They had the misfortune to come up against the two countries that would make it all the way to the final. Algeria and Senegal, in case you were wondering. What does all this have to do with our climb? Everything, really. Part of the reason for travelling, even if you have a goal like a mountain summit, has to be to get to know the people, the country, the culture and the customs. And there is no greater leveller across the whole wide world than football. All right, soccer. The rivalry between Tanzania and Kenya extends to Mount Kilimanjaro itself. The border, like so many in Africa, was created arbitrarily by European colonists. What we now call Tanzania was ruled by the Germans and then the British before gaining independence in 1961 and merging with Zanzibar in 1964. So we're maybe at the halfway point between Horombo and Kibo. And uh, we just had, unfortunately, one of the wheelbarrow, the long kind of wheelbarrow style stretches. Passes coming downhill. Somebody wrapped up so tight at first, I wasn't sure that there was someone inside there. But there is. And I guess the odds are it is altitude sickness. Hopefully nothing worse because altitude sickness at least descend and it will hopefully that will hopefully be the cure the sight of a wheelbarrow stretching somebody off the mountain was a stark reminder that all of us were heading into uncharted territory heights above 14,000 feet are officially recognized as very high altitude and the odds of getting a pulmonary edema a serious and sometimes fatal illness run as high as 15 percent amongst even healthy people who spend time above this altitude. That's why, 24 hours from now, we hope to be on a rapid descent back to the Horombo huts. It was there, yesterday, 
that we'd met a group descending from the Rongai route. They were young, American, looked fit, and some of them had even trained in the Rockies. And yet they'd had a terrible, terrible time of it, every one of them requiring emergency oxygen from their crew. But when we talked in more detail with them, it turned out they hadn't even considered an acclimatization day. It didn't seem to have crossed their radar. They weren't taking Diamox either. Although then again, neither was I. Chances are, they just ascended the mountain too fast. But again, at the Harombo huts, I'd been chatting with a young guy, Menachem, from Long Island, studying out at UCLA. And as we climb today towards the Kibo huts, I meet him on his way down. Yeah, so did you uh, take an acclimatizing day? No. No, I had a five-day trip. Five-day trip. And yeah. How did you feel today? Um, not going to lie, it was, pretty, it was pretty rough. Especially uh, as I approached right after... Uh, Right after Gilman's Point, yeah, it started to kick in big time. I wanted to turn around, but it was freezing. Right, and I knew if I don't, if I didn't keep moving, right, it would be a lot worse. Right, but that's interesting because I just saw you, and I'm like, hang on, he shouldn't be a day ahead of us, but you are. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, um, the way my trip worked out, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do six days. Menachem then was evidence that not everybody does need an acclimatization day, and he too had not taken Diamox. By the way, I asked. The minimum age to climb Kilimanjaro is 10, and that doesn't seem too young. Back at the Marangu Gate, we'd met a Japanese family of three, whose 11-year-old son was walking off the mountain, having successfully summited, like he'd just been on a day trip in a local park. We saw a lot of Japanese on our climb, but the most common nationality on Kilimanjaro is, according to park records, American. Having backpacked around the world a few years ago, I can tell you that's not the case elsewhere and it's hard to know what to put it down to. That the British and the Germans are the next most common climbers probably reflects those nations' close ties to their former colonies. And it says much for the Tanzanians that they welcome us, no questions asked. Sound of some music as a porter comes past us, carrying one pack on his head and another on his back. It's a strange day's hiking. We're out for about five hours before we actually take our lunch break, at which point we can see the Kibo huts off in the distance. They're little more than a mile away at this point, but looks can be deceptive. So just arrived at Kibo hut. I did that last kilometer and a half, almost without stopping. Definite exertion, I feel it. All right, I'm gonna go drink some water and find somewhere to shelter. The Kibo huts are Spartan at best, but nowhere near as bad as Michael Crichton described them in his book of travel stories, in which he compared them to a Siberian prison camp. Look, we're well over 15,000 feet above sea level, and we chose to be here. Under those circumstances, I'll take whatever they give us. And if that's a couple of barracks, divided into dorms, lined with triple bunk beds, that's what it's got to be. As for the equally Spartan toilet facilities, I use them several times before one of the porters lets me know that I'm actually using theirs. So given that I haven't even really noticed as much, it's inexcusable that we see an Italian couple defecating outside. Still, there is nothing for us to do. It's not only cold and windy, but just as we arrive, it starts snowing too. Understandably, this freaks us all out a little. Given that at midnight we're meant to be setting off in the freezing cold to climb the side of the volcano overnight. But Produs is really confident about it. 
Snow in the evening, he says, is almost a sure sign of a clear night ahead. Whatever hardships we may yet endure, there's surely going to be nothing compared to what travellers dealt with decades back. As Tim recalls, of an Aussie he discussed the climb with in Sydney. And I said, what was it like? And he said, well, I don't really remember too much about it because um, the, you know, it was 30 years ago and things were a bit different. And we did it in four days and we had an Aussie tour guide and he did it in shorts. No. And uh, all I remember was I had the most blinding headache of my entire life. <laughs> I can't remember anything apart from I got frost knit and it took three months for my fingers to come back to life. Oh, my God. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mountain clothing has improved dramatically in the decades since Tim's associate got frostbite on Kilimanjaro. You'd like to think common sense has improved as well. As for the blinding headaches, well, they're actually just a given. I take Advil, somewhat precautionary and somewhat out of necessity. At dinner in our dorm, we welcome a woman called Rain, a thoroughly westernised and, it must be said, clearly wealthy solo traveller from the Middle East. Here's to everybody climbing the mountain tomorrow. Yeah. Hey. Cheers, everyone. Yeah. Let's do it. And Rain, welcome to our party. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. The sky, the sky is yeah. clearing up, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the sky. sky. Just like Proda said. Proda's forecast turned out to be 100% accurate. The snow is clearing, leading us to figure out ways to compare the climb ahead of us. Oh. Only 4,000 feet climb and six more kilometers to go. It's like, it's like Blackhead. Blackhead's steep. It's part of a road, a running race we do. It's 18 and a half miles long. <laughs> but Blackhead's the steepest part. That was last Sunday, actually. He did it. Incredibly, it was just nine days since Steve had done the escarpment trail run. Hiking from the back as the sweep. Fantastic training for Kilimanjaro. The blackhead portion that Steve referenced is an 1,100 foot climb in just under a mile. We'd be doing two and a half of those consecutively going up the side of the volcano. And need I mention, at high altitude. After dinner, our excited chatter dies down as we're sent to bed even earlier, at 7pm. The idea is we get four hours sleep before we're woken at 11. The reality? I don't know if any of us got more than an hour or two. I have a feeling you didn't sleep. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) A little bit. (coughs) I knew Protus hadn't slept because I could see him using his phone, checking messages from back home, One of the ironies about the modern world is that the higher you climb, the more contact you have with the rest of it. The fact that I'd been watching Prolus and the glow of his phone, of course, means I hadn't slept either. It's actually very warm. It feels pretty good. It feels very warm because I know, I know. It's usually usually brutal, like cold. Like, you know, as soon as you get up, like... To be clear... The mercury is still around the freezing level, and it will only get lower as we climb higher. Pole, pole, slowly, slowly, fully exposed to the overnight elements on the side of a volcano. Still, it's better than expected, and when I tell Protus what I'm wearing, he recommends I remove two of my synthetic running shirts. 
That still leaves me with about five layers. And on my lower half, I have running tights underneath ski pants. I've got a ski mask on, ski neck warmers, and on top of my thermal beanie, I've got a headlamp with fresh batteries. That's mandatory. So we're about 15 minutes behind schedule. Yeah, behind of the schedule. Yeah, I know. The absolute firm plan has been for us to leave at midnight sharp. So we can, touch wood, be at the Uhuru Peak around sunrise at 6.30, starting our descent before that sun becomes dangerous and to avoid the daily potential for bad weather to blow in. Yet somehow, and again, we seem to be falling behind. It's amazing when you have to pack for something like this. It's like last minute this, that and the other. All of a sudden I can't find my buff. We're all missing something. That point I made earlier about the need to be bullied. As we line up outside, watching other groups from other dorm rooms getting into single file. Then Lucas, Protus's nephew, our guide who's been so laid back up until now suddenly turns into a marine drill sergeant. He orders Marie to stand at the front of our group, which he will be leading. He puts Gwen behind her, me in the middle, Tim behind me, and Steve to bring up the rear, with our senior guide Simon behind him. Protus and Barnabas are free to roam between us. Lucas's selection is far from random. He's clearly been watching us and has got us all figured out. Marie is what we call the rock. She's relentless, unbreakable, so she can help set a pace. Gwen, however, has made no bones of her concerns about this overnight climb, and by putting her second, Lucas is giving her motivation in the form of Marie, but ensuring that if she does slow, we don't break the group apart in the process. I will just stay on her heels, and Tim, who's in no hurry himself, can reap the benefits. Steve should be assured of a steady pace at the back. I think we're ready to go. Just about. Head on up this mountain. We are blessed with the fact it is way warmer than we expected it to be. I've done one serious all-night hike before. That was the escarpment trail that we were referring to at dinner earlier. The hike we did was in December, and it was a serious adventure, but one for which we were also blessed with mild weather. I hadn't had to hike the day before, and I was able to drive home quickly afterwards. This overnight journey comes after a full day of climbing, of course. We're doing it on next to no sleep, as we know. And the climb itself would, of course, be daunting enough, even if we were starting at sea level, and not three miles high. As we depart, we can see what look like fluorescent snakes slowly making their way up the mountain. These are the headlamps of the other tour groups, all of which have set off before us. There is absolutely no indication of where these snakes might end. We know the climb up the side of the volcano to Gilman's Point, where we will hopefully crest the crater rim, is four kilometres in distance and 1,000 metres in elevation. It might be just as well we can't actually see the challenge ahead. The mini-series From Kingston to Kilimanjaro was produced at the studios of Radio Kingston in New York. 
If you have any comments about or suggestions for this show, email onestepbeyond at ijamming.net or find us on social media. Just search for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. Thanks to Mark Lerner for designing the logo and to the members of Madness for permission to use their music as our theme song. You can subscribe to this show on pretty much every podcast platform, again by searching for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a positive review or rating. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. <laughs>